was here about a year and a half ago, and I've been invited back, so I'm taking that as a good sign. <laughs> oh my goodness, there's Bruce back there. Hi there. <laughs> well, I'm going to do something I don't usually do. In fact, I'm doing two things I don't normally do. Today, I am going to read my sermon to you. I usually have an uh, outline, and, uh, but the problem is it's just too complex. So I have to read it. Now, I know that you guys can comprehend this because, you know, Jason's your pastor. He's smart. He, you wouldn't be here unless you, you were smart. So I'm counting on the fact that you're, you're brilliant. So it's going to be a difficult sermon, but I think you can get it. Okay? The second thing I'm going to do that I normally don't do is the whole sermon's an allegory. I don't normally do allegories. I'm not sure you have a problem with allegory, but I know that we're ending up the book of Exodus. Is that right? Yeah, and I was thinking to myself, how in the world can you bring it all together? And I know that Jason's been taking you through the historical, grammatical, and, and, and it's going through all this. I mean, the guy's half Jewish. I mean, you know, after all, where is he right now, you know? <laughs> so... Um, I know you got the historical grammatical down. I don't know what you think about allegory, but uh, let me, uh, uh, just as an introduction, give you a defense of what I'm going to do. Uh, first of all, I'm going to read a quote from St. Augustine, okay, in defense of allegory. Just to know, just so you know, I'm not doing anything spurious up here, okay? This is St. Augustine. For the feeding and fanning of that ardent love by which under a law like that of gravitation, we are born upwards or inwards to rest. The presentation of truth by emblems has a great power. For, thus presented, things move and kindle our affection much more if they are, um, than if they were set by bald statements not clothed in sacramental symbols. Why this should be, it's hard to say. But it is a fact that anything which we are taught by allegory or emblem affects and pleases us more and is more highly esteemed by us than it would be if most clearly stated in plain terms. He continues and says this, I believe that the emotions are less easily kindled while the soul is wholly involved in earthly things. But if we are brought to those corporal things which are emblems of spiritual things and then taken from these to spiritual realities, which they represent, it gathers strength by the mere act of passing from one to the other and, like the flame of light torch, uh, of a lighted torch, is made by the motion to burn more brightly and is carried away to rest by a more intensely glowing love. This is St. Augustine. So what's important to St. Augustine in exegesis what is it? It's not just the cognitive understanding, but the incendiary quality of one's work. 
A good piece of exegesis sets the reader on fire. Or using another metaphor, it lifts one up to transcendence. Do you know what St. Paul does this a number of times? You're aware of this, I'm sure, right? And each time that he does this, the reader gets a lift. Engaging their imaginations and their passions to the magnificent theology he is communicating. For instance, in a famous passage in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 and following, Paul wishes to drive his doctrine of grace and promise into the hearts of his readers by moving from Sarah to the new covenant which she represents, but also to Jerusalem, another symbol. These are archetypes. Who is our mother? Mother's a great archetype, right? City. This is very powerful when one considers that Paul was appealing to those who thought his doctrines were new and radical and wished to play it safe by hanging on to the old ways of thinking. What is mother? What is home? What is truly legitimate? Ah, it has been and always will be God's grace. These images have timeless power as well, for they are important to us who have homes and mothers and are moved by the whole idea of great cities. So there, on the basis of Two authorities, we're going to do an allegory this morning. Okay? St. Augustine and St. Paul. Are you with me? Okay, no problems here, huh? Okay, good. The book of Exodus is, in fact, a mirror of the soul as it progresses from darkness to light. In short, All that is within the book is within me and is within you. Every part of it corresponds to a part of my personhood, both my exterior, the visible, and my interior, the invisible. The book opens with a human being in its natural state, without grace, all gloomy, In despair, humiliated, humiliated, I should say. I've just invented a new word there. And in bondage and without hope. What is Egypt? Egypt is the world. Now, the birth of Moses is the birth of the new mind, or we will use the word in this allegory, the intellect by the Holy Spirit, whose task is to integrate the fragmented and chaotic soul into conformity with Christ. Now, this is one of the hardest symbols in my allegory. Moses symbolizes the intellect, and usually when you think of the intellect, you think of reason, discursive reason. But that's not what the intellect is. Intellect is not reason, but the deepest part of our soul that is reborn in Christ. The mysterious core of our being that knows God intuitively and relationally. 
The intellect is that part of us that longs and searches, employing the reason, the will, the emotions. These are, these are all the tools that our intellect uses. Okay? So you understand what I mean by the intellect? It's the very core of our spiritual being. So let me repeat that one sentence. The birth of Moses is the birth of the new mind or the intellect. Actually, the uh, Eastern uh, churches have a, a, a name for this. It's a, the Greek name is nous. Okay? Uh, it, by the Holy Spirit, whose task is to integrate the fragmented and chaotic soul into conformity with Christ. Now, the Israelites at this stage symbolize the Christian in his or her initial stage of awakening. Notice how the mother in chapter 1 saw that Moses was good. The Hebrew is ki tov. And any Hebrew reading this would have been immediately taken to Genesis chapter 1 where God created things and what did he say after each thing he created? Ki tov. You guys know Hebrew, of course. I'm not surprised, right? Not only that, she placed them in an ark. There's only two places where the word teva is located in the Old Testament. One of them's here, and the other one is with Noah's ark. Notice that she placed them in an ark and placed them in the water. These allusions to creation and deliverance from the flood bring up to the consciousness of the reader the image of the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos of the watery deep in Genesis 1. Contemplating the creative act of separating out of, out of the new nature, separating out the new age, nature from the chaos surrounding it. At first, the baby Moses a small, frail, imperceptible speck tossed about by the watery deep. This divinely energized intellect will, like the creation of the earth, grow into something glorious and powerful. This, however, takes time. As the intellect grows and becomes aware, it begins to see its plight and acts on its own, blundering as it stretches out by its own power and sense of justice. Isn't that what Moses did when he murdered the, man, the Egyptian? You see, it rises up against the powers of darkness that surround it. That is, Egypt strikes out and fails miserably. Like Moses, our intellect ends up in the wilderness, licking its wounds and perhaps forgetting that it had ever entertained thoughts of freeing itself from the tyranny of slavery. We become satisfied with domestic things like marriage and family and spend our time watching transient things like Moses watching the sheep, thinking that now this is all there is in life. In this state... God unexpectedly breaks into its consciousness and commissions the intellect to go back to its divine activity. God promises to go with it and empowers it for an impossible task. 
This is what happened with Moses at the burning bush. Now Aaron. Aaron represents the soul's will through which the intellect picks up and gives order to the fragmented pieces of the soul. In our story, Aaron, the will, is the intellect's spokesperson. Isn't that what Aaron did for Moses? The will does this by giving order to the passions, which by nature are chaotic and need to find their rest in God. In the end, Aaron will preside as a priest, presenting the integrated soul to God in the innermost sanctuary. The intellect and the will, however, must first confront Pharaoh, who symbolizes the old nature. Pharaoh. The Egypt within, which is bent on self-destruction. The old nature is that part of us that is totally unredeemable and must be destroyed, for it is absolutely in line with the demonic forces that are at war with God. It is obstinate, and though it may be subdued after great difficulty, it never really dies until our body dies, just like Pharaoh in the story never dies, does he? The battle is fierce. And the old nature relents only when Yahweh's angel kills its offspring. Pharaoh's son symbolizes the old nature's hope for continued dominion in the soul. Even then, it is dangerous and musters its dark forces against the intellect and the will as they lead the newly formed soul out of the domains of Egypt. I need to tell you something about this business about Pharaoh. I was in a um, New England. I was in a, a hotel, you know, teaching. Um, and uh, I was just sitting there thinking about this, meditating about the book of Exodus. And I, I, I thought, you know, throughout my life, I have a strange relationship with this Pharaoh when I read scriptures. He seems so familiar to me. And he seems like he's alive. I, I knew his obstinacy and viciousness. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks, which is probably the beginning of this allegory. I know Pharaoh. He's inside me. And you know something about Pharaoh? And it's something about you and your old natures? Every one of you. You're so wonderful, you know. You're, you know whether if you're a man, you have an old man in you, you know? <laughs> and if, you, if you're a woman, you have an old woman in you. Even if you're a young free thing. <laughs> We all have this. And something about our old man and our old woman is that it's not just potentially evil. It is evil. 
In him or her lie hidden every crime that is in this world. Pharaoh was the lord of Egypt, a god. And this archetype of Pharaoh has cosmic dimensions. Within our old man is a virtual world turning in chaos. Do you believe me? Moreover, we live this strange illusion that somehow my old man is prettier than the guys next to me. <laughs> but it's not. Every old man, every old woman is, is perfectly evil. And it's not any prettier than, let's say, Adolf Hitler's. Hitler's was... Uh, the difference between us and Hitler is that uh, not only did it take over his whole being, but it's able to take over the psyche of the whole, whole nation. You see? This is desperate, isn't it? It's a desperate situation. And all would be lost were it not for Yahweh's warrior prowess. For he deceives the deceiver by drawing his forces out after the escaping soul, only to be destroyed by the watery deep, the, the Red Sea. Evil, the psalmist says, shall destroy the wicked. Now, how are you guys doing with this so far? You follow me along? Okay. And if you don't agree with this and you think it's all crazy, that's okay. You can just go out and forget. <laughs> God directs the intellect and the will to bring the soul out into the wilderness after this great victory so that the newly formed soul might worship him. The wilderness is a harsh place for the tender soul. God intends to strengthen it by testing. The soul cries out and complains, and God miraculously provides. Soon, the soul finds itself before Sinai, the mountain of God, which symbolizes Eden, the holy mount, from which the soul was banished and the place where God wishes to restore communion Intimacy is intense, too intense for the young and inexperienced soul. The intellect, that is Moses, is invited up the mountain and receives God's laws, but the will, Aaron, and the rest of the soul, the twelve tribes, stand back in fright of the intense glory of uncreated light. Now, God wishes to create a place where he might come and actually live enshrined within the soul and shows the intellect a vision of heavenly realities. From this heavenly pattern, the intellect must construct a sanctuary. This sanctuary is, in fact, the blueprint for the final integration of the soul, the real sanctuary in which God has a passion to dwell. You know, so that the sanctuary is to be set up right in the middle of the twelve tribes. As the soul is in the heart of our humanity. The outer walls 
symbolize the mysterious dimension that separates, yet integrates the physical and the spiritual. It is made out of skins, remember? Did, uh, did Jason talk about the tabernacle? Yeah, made out of skin. This affirming the reality and goodness of our flesh and its glorious role of housing the spiritual. Our bodies are not the prisons of the soul, but are the outward, visible stamp of the image of God who dwells within. The description begins with the sanctuary itself. However, beginning with the holiest thing of all, within the holiest chamber of all. This, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant, with its cherubim arched over the propitiatory, propitiatory, I'm sorry, or better known as the mercy seat, made of pure gold. Here, transcendence actually comes into contact with the terrestrial soul, divine soul touching the soul. The terrifying theophany of Sinai, to which Aaron, the will, is invited for the covenant meal, along with the 70 elders that symbolize the totality of the inner soul, wishes to move off the mountain and take residence with the people in their tabernacle in the midst of them. Next, the holy place is described, which is designed to be the quiet place where the soul waits on God. For continuous intimacy with God in the most holy place is too intense for the mortal frame in this life. The table. I'm sure that Jason described this to you walk in, right? The table on your right as you enter upon which are placed the 12 loaves of bread, symbolizes God's yearning to dine and commune with the human soul. You know, you're going to be doing Leviticus. I see that. Okay? And uh, this is all so wonderful. Because you'll notice something about all the sacrifices. All the sacrifices are consumed. Right? They're either consumed by God with divine fire and raises as a sweet aroma to him, or it's consumed by the priest, or it's consumed by the, the sacrifices. Isn't that amazing? I want you to think about that. Because you know what worship is? Worship is And there's never any sacrifice in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, where eating is not involved. As a matter of fact, I need to talk to Jason about something. Something is missing. A piece of furniture is missing in this place, and I think we need a new piece of furniture. I might get in trouble for saying this, but I think you need a, a little altar up here, don't you think? A place where you come and bring your gift, your tithe, where you sacrifice, where your sacrifice meets 
God's sacrifice at the table. Eating is a very biblical thing, and it never, there's never worship without it. So, I'll just keep that, you keep that in your mind. You need to invest in a piece of furniture here. <laughs> I might get it from Jason later, I don't know, but okay. We'll move on, okay? But furniture is important, right? Okay, uh, it's symbolic. After all, there's an altar in heaven. You want to go to heaven? Read the book of Revelation. There's an altar there. Oh, okay. <clears throat> the lampstand of gold is on the left. It's decorated with the floral designs of paradise. And it must burn every night. It symbolizes the light of God filling his sanctuary. Is is to be observed that it's Aaron's responsibility. And who does Aaron represent? The will. It's the will's responsibility to trim the light and never let darkness into the soul. As one looks forward toward the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, one will see the incense altar. The incense symbolizes the prayers of the soul. And again, Aaron, our will, must engage itself every morning and evening in burning the incense of prayer. For it is by constant prayer that our wills become one with God's will. All around the tapestry of the walls and on the veil are images of the cherubim. These are to show that all around us are God's angels. Cherubim in particular are those closest to God's holy presence and even protected from that which is unholy, you take you back to Genesis chapter 3, is the cherubim that kept them out. Adam and Eve from the garden, right? Here, they're guarding the most holy place as well. Now, before we can even enter into the interiors of our sanctuary we must first come to terms with the brazen altar upon which the blood sacrifice must be made in the courtyard before the entrance of the sanctuary. The profound thing about this altar is that it is part of the heavenly vision which Moses saw. When you get time, look at Exodus 24.9, Exodus 25.40, Exodus 26.30, in Exodus 27, 8. Because it's the most amazing thing is that this tabernacle is a design of heavenly reality. It's a, it's a design of heaven. And therefore, it's anchored in heaven. It's not sort of a, you know, a passing fad type thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <clears throat> there is something in the eternal realm that corresponds to this altar and the sacrifice. These must represent the burning flames of love that the Holy Trinity has for each other, each person loving the other in perfect self-sacrifice. There's sacrifice then, even in heaven. Because when you really get down to what is love? Love is 
self-giving. Most poignantly for us, it represents Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, thereby making an entrance to mystical union with the Father through his Spirit. Now connected to this is the image of Christ being the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. This veil, which was torn at the hour of his death, we have this in Luke 23, 25, is said to be his flesh through which we gain intimate access to God. We can read about this in Hebrews 10, 10. You see, the New Testament knew something about allegory, didn't it? Christ's act of self-sacrifice opens the way for our self-sacrifice, for if we do not burn ourselves on the altar in ardent flames of love and passion, then we will never enter the sanctuary. Moreover, we cannot enter without washing at the laver that stands between the entrance and the altar. It is by water and blood that John said that we are saved. Now, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the labor. How are we doing for time? You, okay, okay. Well, uh, the labor is interesting. <clears throat> it is a striking inclusion of detail that the bronze basin for washing was finally made with what? Does anybody remember? The labor was made from the mirrors. I love this. The mirrors of the women <laughs> who served at the entrance of the tent in 38.8. Now, this fact is not mentioned in chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. Surely this invites us to consider the truth that we must give up gazing at ourselves. We can do without our mirrors. Rather, we should wash ourselves from our self-love before we can commune with God from within. Now, I'm not telling you to go home and get rid of your mirrors, okay? <laughs> but you get, the, you get the fact of the symbolism, right? This whole vision given to the intellect, Moses, ends with an instruction to keep the Sabbath. We have this in Exodus 31, 12. The Sabbath rest is the ultimate symbol for paradise on earth. And everything was to be oriented to this last day of the week. Unfortunately, we immediately come upon the rebellion of the soul against the high calling, which God, through the intellect, has called it. The passions symbolized by the people of Israel separate the will, Aaron, from the intellect. Instead of the will controlling the passions, the passions control the will. They demand that the will, that Aaron, gather gold from their earrings and make an idol to worship Yahweh in their own way. It becomes a power struggle who shall rule the soul? Having committed such a crime, the intellect intercedes for the confused and rebellious soul and gains a new vision of Yahweh, even a glimpse of his glory. 
Why is there such hope and possibility of restoration after such a crime? Well, it is because Yahweh is gracious and has compassion. And this is a crucial turning point for the soul. This episode of the golden calf symbolizes the war within that the soul is faced with. The forces of the chaotic passions and the intellect that would subdue them and present them to God in the inter-sanctuary. In the triumphant soul, the intellect comes down from the mountain, shining like Moses, whose face shined because of his contact with God, and subdues the passions of the soul through the will. Now we're almost done. Just I know this is a difficult sermon, but you seem to be following along pretty well for the most part. Um, scholars are perplexed as to why such high drama is immediately followed by five chapters of material, chapters 35 through 39, that merely repeats chapters 25 through 31. Have you ever thought about that as you were reading through the book of Exodus? It's a strange thing, isn't it? We have in chapters 25 through 31 the intricate details of how to make the sanctuary. In chapters 35 through 39, we see that the Israelites actually build the sanctuary detail by detail. The question is, why not just simply say that the people made the sanctuary according to the plans given to Moses previously? Don't you think that that would be a good way to save parchment? Why is there all the redundancy of repeated detail? Are you all with me now? This is an important question. Herein we have the greatest proof that we must look at this book as a map for the progress of the soul. The book demands that once we emerge victorious from the fight, we must then go through the long and tedious work of erecting the sanctuary according to the plans laid out by God to the intellect. In other words, it is not enough to merely have the vision of what can be, but we also must make it a reality, peace by Rather than giving the gold of our earrings to idols that glorify ourselves, we must forsake our ornaments that symbolize our self-glorying. Moreover, we must make offerings and sacrifices to the Lord, which become the materials by which the inner shrine is built. Rather than chapters 35 through 39 being a long, repetitious waste of precious parchment, they become a symbol of the long and arduous task of putting into practice the reality of what we already know to be true. Isn't that the main thing in the Christian life? So many people have the vision. They know it. It's been preached to them. 
week in and week out. Many there are who have the vision and are content to know the truth, but few there are who make the vision a reality. And you know something? We have to be filled with a certain holy discontent till that sanctuary is actually built within. It is only then, it's only when we have built the sanctuary that we fully experience the celestial procession described in chapter 40. Did you guys read it for today? Exodus chapter 40 is one of the most wonderful chapters in the Bible. Here the king of glory comes in. Reminds me of Psalm 27. Who is the king of glory? The Lord God Almighty. This glory is so intense that even the intellect the instrument through which God molded the soul into a divine dwelling cannot comprehend it. What does it say in Exodus chapter 3? Even Moses couldn't stand before it. Moses, the intellect, stands with the fully integrated soul in worship as it experiences glory too magnificent to describe. The totality of the soul experiences a union so complete that it no longer moves according to its own mass machinations. What happens? What does it say in the text? When the people, when, when, when the fiery, if the fire and the cloud moves, then what? The people moved with them. They moved right in tandem with God. That's God's vision for us. to move harmoniously with the will of God, just as the Israelites spontaneously moved in the wilderness by the cloudy pillar by day and the fiery pillar by night. That's it. That's the allegory. And I don't know what you're thinking right now, but let me just tell you this as a conclusion. I want you to picture me. The year is 1967-68. Little Johnny Wargle is what? 15, or 13, I should say 13 years old. Picture him in the back of his dad's old Chevy. Insipid white color, you remember And I'm, in a, I'm driving along. Maybe we're driving to Sears. That's what everybody did back then. Maybe to a relative. And that little boy in there is so confused. The whole world in the 60s was, was in huge transition. Who could understand it? My parents weren't educated. They didn't have the wherewithal to even know what's going on. I didn't know what was happening in the world. Matter of fact, in my little world, which is in uh, you know junior high and high school at that time, I was totally out to lunch. I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was this: everything conspired to make me feel very, very small and insignificant. 
is the world's lie. You see. Now, I always loved the old Bible stories, and I love these stories, and somehow they connected with me. How and, and why, I couldn't tell you. But I'll tell you now what was going on here. The stories are not just history. However sacred that history may be. It's images. Speak to the soul. And somehow, it expand a little bit, the little fire in within there, a little Moses within, giving it some hope. You understand? Because the Exodus drama is my drama. It's your drama. Right? You see it? Our battle is not an isolated individual matter. It is a cosmic struggle, and it parallels that to Israel's struggle. Indeed, we are the new Israel, aren't we? Well, let us pray. Lord Jesus, move deeply within our hearts. You've made us so deep, so wonderful. Indeed, there's a whole cosmos within us, a whole universe, a place big enough for the kingdom of God, a place big enough even for you, almighty God, to dwell within. Stir us, each one of us here, Lord, we pray, to see the vision that you have for us. And help us not only to see it, but to build it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.